the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 19th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. We are all afraid of something. Realistically, probably more than just one thing. For me, it's cockroaches and snakes and any impact sport where I might get my teeth knocked out. For you, it's probably something entirely different. But one thing we all share in common when it comes to fear is how our brains process it. Jeff Wise is a New York-based science journalist who's been having extreme adventures and writing about them for a long time. A couple of years ago, faced with the prospect of bungee jumping into a gorge, it dawned on him that his fear would be worth writing about, or at least describing in scientific terms. So Jeff wrote a book. It's called Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. And this week, I sat down with Jeff to talk about it. My name is Jeff Wise. I'm a magazine writer and the author of the book Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. There was a moment I mentioned the book where I was in this bungee jumping platform in British Columbia and I it didn't seem logically like a big problem to jump into a gorge from 150 feet up and yet when I was on the edge of that bridge and looking down into all that empty air I thought holy crap this is insane I just every molecule of my body was telling me don't do this and yet I knew intellectually that there was zero percent chance of me coming to grief So this raises the interesting question of how can we become taken over by this mysterious force? What is it, and how does it work? Jeff's tried to answer this question in his new book called Extreme Fear. If anyone should know what it's like to be in a scary situation, it's probably Jeff. He's jumped out of planes, scuba-dived with sharks, and writes the I'll Try Anything column for Popular Mechanics. Wise has a degree in biology from Harvard, but didn't stay in the lab because he realized it was the science stories that interested him more than the lab work. You know, I wasn't so interested in the test tube work or going out and spending five years investigating the life cycle of a barnacle. But the story of the life cycle of the barnacle can be absolutely fascinating. So I was very happy to spend, you know, half an hour reading the paragraph or whatever it may be about the barnacle. But I didn't want to be the guy in the boat watching the barnacle. I have a short attention span, so that led me into journalism where I could kind of pick something up and put it down. Extreme Fear has got some great stories in it, but it also has some good science. When we're faced with something scary or potentially scary, our brains all have the same response. There are these fairly ancient structures. One of the most famous ones is is called the amygdala, which everyone's heard of, and that actually lies sort of near the hippocampus. And what it does is it operates at a subconscious level. So you will never directly experience amygdala activation, but you will experience things that the amygdala then turns on or off. The sensation of fear has more to do with a region called the insula, and the behavioral responses to the uh, to fear, many of them are triggered by a region called the periaqueductal gray, which is a, a region of the midbrain. So this is all very kind of deep, ancient structures that evolved fairly long ago in our evolutionary history. And they respond in a very rough way to things that could potentially be dangerous to the organism, to us. And they operate very quickly. 
Obviously, when it comes to mortal danger, speed is of the essence. What tends to happen is if there's a potentially threatening stimulus, these ancient structures very quickly respond and trigger a response that might be a, the, the most basic and quickest one would just be the flinch response. So if somebody shouts in your ear, boom, you, your muscles tighten up, you kind of go into a clenched posture, your heart rate elevates. And that just involves a very direct chain of neurons from the sensory organs to the, to the motor neurons uh, and creating this response incredibly quickly. And we've all been startled. And what tends to happen is you realize, oh, it was only a, a truck backfiring or somebody dropped a stack of books or something. And so that you then process through conscious experience what's happening. And then you, the brain, again, at a subconscious level, actually will then suppress that fear response. And a lot of this stuff goes on so quickly and automatically that we're not uh, even aware of it. Our fear processing center is so old in evolutionary terms that we essentially share it with almost all other living creatures. Our fear response is instinctive and, like Jeff says, pretty mechanic. A lot of people in daily life feel a bit straitjacketed by their fears and also feel bad about themselves for the fears that they harbor. And I'm here to tell you that that fear circuitry that swings into action is the same whether it's a cockroach in your closet or a bear that's like attacking you. Once that circuitry swings into action, it can take you over. And I would argue, you know, don't pass a judgment on yourself. Just recognize that this mechanism exists. It's operating. There's, there may not be much that you can do about it at the time. There may be some things you can do about it. But I think just recognizing that it is a mechanism. It's not a a character flaw. One of the cool things about Jeff's book is that he actually gets involved in his research. He opens the book by talking about a study he took part in with New York-based researcher Lillianne Mujica Parodi. One of the issues she's looking at is the age-old question of how can we tell who is going to respond well in the face of danger and who is going to not handle it well. And this is kind of an age-old trope of war movies and things. I mean, back to the dawn of time, you don't know who's going to be brave when a battle starts. Mm-hmm. Someone who talks tough can become a coward, and someone who seems like a milk toast can become brave. And so the Army, who is uh, the D- Defense Department, is funding her, her research, and they would like to know, what can we tell about how someone will perform under pressure without having to actually put them in battle? Can we somehow screen people out, not necessarily to you know, keep them from battle, but maybe to uh, customize the training experience for them. So what she was trying to do, uh, and her work is ongoing, is to look at people's brains in an fMRI scanner and see how they respond to very subtle cues of danger, like neutral faces, and then to see how that correlates to what happens when they jump out of an airplane for the first time. And it's very difficult to do uh, research into fear because it's not ethical to, you know, bring them into a laboratory and, you know, wave a gun at them or something. So she had to find people who were planning to skydive anyway for the first time. And when I found out about this, I, I volunteered in a heartbeat. And I had never skydived before, which is fantastic because you have to be a first-time skydiver to do it. Otherwise, you will have already habituated to the stimulus. So Jeff took part in Lillian's study, which first involved a series of tests when he was at ease and resting, like this one. I took part in a brain scanning experiment where I was, I was looking at uh, faces that were shown to me. And they were just neutral faces. They didn't wear a scary expression. But the mere sight of a novel face, of a face of someone you haven't seen before, is enough to trigger the amygdala 
and then immediately the the frontal cortex, um, the region of the brain that largely plays that uh, inhibitory role, will shut it down uh, because it's not dangerous. These subconscious regions are constantly scanning the environment for danger. So when Jeff actually had to jump out of the plane for the first time, Lillian wired him up and took readings as he experienced actual danger. The difference in the brain, of course, is that when Jeff was looking at the faces of strangers in the fMRI machine, his rational brain was able to say to his amygdala that there was nothing to really be worried about. But as Jeff jumped out of the plane, his fear center in his brain was screaming, DANGER! And his rational, reasoning part of the brain had to agree. When we're faced with real danger and feel afraid, the fear center in our brain goes into action. It tenses our muscles and increases the blood flow to them. Our heartbeat quickens to pump oxygen through our bodies faster, and our mouths go dry as the body stops focusing on digestion and other less important functions and starts focusing on survival. Remarkably, based on Jeff's test results from before he ever jumped out of a plane, Lillian was able to anticipate the approximate level of fear and the reaction that Jeff would have under dangerous circumstances. This is all based on understanding how Jeff's feedback loops in his brain work on an everyday basis when he's not afraid. While skydiving is definitely scary, some of the other stories Jeff tells in his book are, well, you should listen for yourself. The story of a Soviet uh, medic who was uh, stationed down in Antarctica during the early 60s and was stranded essentially on the edge of the continent in the middle of the southern winter and came down with appendicitis and the only person who could operate on him was himself. He was going to die in very short order if he didn't remove the um, afflicted portion. And so he basically told the people around him, or you know, drivers and technicians and things, and he instructed them on how to prop him up and you know, he gave himself a local anesthetic and uh, some other drugs and he said to them, if I pass out, like, you know, wake me up. And, you know, he did it. You know, I tell this story as the prelude to a chapter about willpower. And in a way, the point of the story is kind of the reverse of the point of the chapter, namely that we imagine that we have vast reserves of will, of willpower, that we are essentially creatures of will, that we can do what we choose to do whenever we want to. Now, anyone who's ever tried to give up cigarette smoking or various other vices can attest it can be actually very hard to exert will on a sustained basis. But, you know, notwithstanding that kind of thing, I, I think we do imagine, like, I want to go on the subway, and so I will go on the subway. And we make these decisions and we carry them out. But when it comes to fear, what happens is that this part of our brain that seems to be in charge most of the time gets shunted to the side. And these ancient structures that I was mentioning earlier take over. And so we become creatures who are running around under the influence of what? You know, uh, some kind of primitive alter ego that we normally have never met. The chapter is about uh, our lack of willpower, really, although here was a guy, and so I get back at the end and talk about, okay, so we have no willpower. Willpower is very ineffective when you're in an extremely frightening situation. So how is it that people like this guy, the Soviet medic, were able to perform this incredible feat of willpower. And, uh, you know, part of it is training. Part of it is being motivated to do what needs to be done by fear. You know, one of the things that fear does is it powerfully focuses our concentration and does allow us to perform incredible feats. You know, whether it be, as you mentioned, you know, lifting a car off an injured person 
or you know not feeling any pain while you're being swept down a mountainside in an avalanche it gives us sort of extraordinary powers and i think what this medic experienced was that sort of superhuman ability that, that intense fear can give us. It also, as we said before, allows us to act instinctually. We've all heard of the fight or flight response, but to actually see it in action and understand why our bodies are reacting in the way they do is another story. Fight or flight is the man in the street terminology for activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is an ancient circuitry, essentially, that exists to put an organism in a state to respond vigorously to what's going on in the environment, uh, uh, whether it's running away or attacking or, you know, the sexual response also is, is partly mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. It gets us going. It's, it's, we're revved up. The heart is racing. The blood is coursing through our veins, and we're ready uh, for action. So what is the action that we take? Well, we have this very ancient uh, uh, circuitry that can do different things depending on the threat. And so I tell the story in the book of a woman named Sue Yellowtail who was a hydrologist who was studying a stream in a remote canyon in southwestern Colorado when she noticed a mountain lion looking at her and her first reaction was to freeze which seems logical you know she might have even thought at the time okay I'm choosing to remain still but in fact what was probably happening was just that this this fear uh, center inside her brain was had chosen that course of action for her you see something dangerous that's at a distance you focus on it you turn your eyes and your ears towards it you remain still basically a posture of, okay, what's going to happen next? What should I do? Is this a threat? If so, what's the appropriate response to this threat? So she kind of went through that phase. She locked eyes with this mountain lion. So this mountain lion uh, started to move towards her. And she thought, okay, well, I think I want to keep some distance between myself and this thing. So she starts to move away. And she tried to keep herself under control, which is always the interesting part of the fear response. We know we have a conscious idea, perhaps, of what we ought to be doing, and we find ourselves at odds with our own behavior. Okay, I'm moving away. I don't want to run too fast because I don't want to. She had studied biology. She didn't want to trigger this animal's attack response, which is, you know, its own uh, instinct. So she was fighting her urge to flee. The thing got closer and closer and closer. And eventually the urge to flee became so strong and probably her conscious mind was like, oh boy, my, my strategy isn't really working, so what the hell? So she gave into it and she started to run. Uh, she ran into the river. She slipped, the mountain lion jumped on her. It bit her head. She's underwater. And she found herself limp. And this is something, you know, call it playing possum because this is this is a response that possums often do possums aren't huge animals they don't have claws or spines or things and so sometimes the only way that they can uh, help themselves is to just pretend that they're dead there's a lot of predators who won't eat a dead prey animal we also have that response and people who faint are experiencing a bit of this circuitry gone awry so she was underwater and she she started to dissociate a little bit which is something that you very commonly hear about people in intensely fearful situations. She felt as if she was watching a movie. She felt as if it was something that was happening to somebody else. And she was floating there underneath the water, kind of looking up at the shimmering surface in this kind of dreamlike state and thinking, well, you know, we all have to go sometime. And then 
somehow the next phase of the sympathetic nervous system panic response kicked in and she was up and running and fighting. An interesting side of the story is that for about 15 seconds she has no recollection of what happened. She completely blacked out because, you know, as I alluded to earlier, the, 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 the fear centers in your brain can just completely overwhelm the conscious decision-making machinery that we tend to think of as us and just completely shut it down entirely so that she absolutely had no memory. She'll never know what happened during those moments, but she, next thing she knows, she's on the riverbank. She's sort of leaning on top of the uh, animal. Her, one of her arms is down its throat. You know, she's trying to fight it off with the other one. She had some string around her neck, and she's like, I'm going to try to, like, strangle the mountain lion with a string, but that didn't really work. And so we see her here kind of trying to, with her reason, return. So she's gotten her more evolved thought processes back, and she's using them now that she's kind of reached this fairly stable part of this encounter where she's trying to think through what she can do. And she arrives at the conclusion that she can stab this thing in the eye with this hemostat, which is what she does. She just, like, basically pokes its eye out, and it gives up. And it lets go of her arm. It stands up. She stands up. They kind of look at each other warily, and then she backs away and runs away. And, the, and, that's, the, and that's the story of her encounter. The, the authorities later came and, and shot the animal. It turned out it was a female that had been starving to death. It's, it, was, it had gotten old. Its teeth had worn down. It wasn't really able to feed itself with its normal prey, and it had gotten desperate. And so it had attacked a predator. You know, a, a human being is a predator, rather formidable predator, and, and a large one for most of the, the animal kingdom. So it was a desperation move on the, on the, on the mountain lion's part. Sue Yellowtail's story is, indeed, pretty extreme. But fear can come in all sorts of forms, from social to performance to just plain anxiety and stress. One of the chapters is about a a woman named Cindy Jacobs who was very generous in uh, telling me her story and sharing her time with me. Uh, She was driving down the road with her children in the back seat, and she started to have a heart attack. She pulled over. She thought, oh, my God, there's, like, Raffi playing on on the radio, and... She's, uh, she, she's got her kids, you know, babbling in the backseat, and she thinks, my God, I'm going to die right here in this car. And she called her HMO's nurse or, or, or something and says, I'm having a heart attack. And the nurse says, sweetheart, if you were having a heart attack, you wouldn't be on the phone to me. And the nurse kind of talked her through it and said, your symptoms are going to subside, and indeed they did. And she went home and she forgot about it. But for the next year, she would have these recurring attacks where she was absolutely convinced that she was going to die. And I think it's hard for people who haven't experienced an anxiety attack to realize just how powerful and how terrifying and overwhelming that feeling can be. It is the same feeling that you get when you're being eaten by a bear. There's just no bear. One of the repeating mantras I have in the book is when you're in danger or when you're in a very frightening situation, you have two problems. You've got the problem and you've got your own reaction to the problem. And a lot of times it's the second one that's really the majority of your problem. I ask Jeff if spending all this time learning about fear has changed the way he thinks about being afraid or taught him anything that's really stuck. The most awesome part of this whole topic, as I look at it from a distance, is that we imagine ourselves to be the masters of our little mental domain. You know, what they call the Descartian dualism illusion, the idea that you're this little man inside the head and you're working the levers and all the information is flowing into this little homunculus who sits behind the eyeballs with his steering wheel and gear shift. That's an illusion. That is not how it really works. And my wife recently um, gave birth. We have a young son. And 
when that happens to you, you realize how tiny and inconsequential consciousness is compared to the vast evolutionary history of our species. Everything I've ever done in my life consciously has been incredibly difficult and has come out kind of crappy, kind of imperfect, kind of fraught with ways I could have done it better. And yet, here's, you can do the, the most mindless act imaginable, by accident even, and out of it comes this completely perfect, complex, and just amazingly flawless outcome. And you look at that, and you think, you know, everything I've ever achieved through conscious effort is a pittance compared to what my body is capable of doing without a lick of thought whatsoever. But the same is true just of our brains. You know, the, the stuff that we, we perform automatically without any conscious effort is far more impressive than even, you know, Einstein's equations. Jeff Wise's book, Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger, is published by Macmillan and available at all major bookstores. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.